Welcome to another episode of Regeneration Studio. I took a short break after reaching episode 10, and I'm delighted to be back in the studio. Life is slowly returning to our towns and cities, albeit in different ways across the world. And the world has not just turned itself upside down, but has become a yo-yo of tension as we continue to navigate the regulations of COVID-19 and now also come to terms with social inequality. So first and foremost, I hope that everyone listening to this episode is safe and well. In the coming weeks, I hope to bring you some diverse and inspirational narrative journeys about artists and businesses and how they make a difference in their communities. I have an exciting list of interviews lined up, which I cannot wait to share with you. As some of you might remember, I attended the virtual edition of the Gateshead International Festival of Theatre this year. Besides the many thought-provoking performances, there were also eye-opening debates. And it's there that I heard for the first time Arundhati Roy's analogy of the pandemic as a portal. She describes it as a gateway to a better world, giving us the chance to break with the past and leave prejudice and hatred behind. A part of me still wants to believe that this is possible, even while reading about the recent protests and the embroiled outrage in many countries as people join together in support of the Black Lives Matters movement and social justice. As individuals, we do what we can. We donate, sign petitions, read up on colonial history or racial discrimination. But what became apparent last week was that making a difference of any social kind does not stop with one action or one day of solidarity. Artists have the unique opportunity to investigate social issues in greater depth and often in surprising ways. Many powerful theatre performances during GIFT, for example, raised various questions about our society. One such performance, Elision, was by Icelandic performance artist and director based in Glasgow, Gudrun Sule Sigadottir. In general, her work deals with some of the most poignant issues in our lives. The gap that is left when a person passes away, where we belong, what we leave behind, expectations, and finally, our culture of separation and segregation. Welcome to the show, Gudrun. Thank you so much for having me. To give our listeners an idea of who you are, imagine there is a film soon to be released called Gudrun. Can you briefly introduce yourself in the style of a film trailer? Yes, of course. Um, I'm going to have to put on my dramatic voice for this. Who is she? Where does she really come from? What is her story? She calls herself Gudrun, but here, but Gudrun Sole there, and her full name is Gudrun Sole Seurðardóttir. She is Icelandic. She grew up in Hafnafjörður. She lives in Glasgow in Scotland. She moved there in 2012 to study contemporary performance practice at the Royal Conservatory of Scotland. It's 2020 now, and she is still there. She is a performance maker, a director, and a teaching artist. She is a musician, a pottery maker, and experimental chef. She is chaotic, but also extremely organized. 
She is a daughter, a sister, a partner, and auntie of an amazing three-year-old boy in Iceland. She is a strong believer in the transformative power of the arts. She is diplomatic, but also very emotional, and she is feeling very overwhelmed with everything that's going on in the world right now. She would never describe herself as a film, and has realised that she's put way too much information into the trailer, like so many other great films do. <laughs> Part one, I'm here, I'm from there, isn't it incredible? So as you explained in your introduction, you are originally from Iceland. Your most recent performance, Elision, which I had the privilege to watch and participate in online during GIFT 2020, interrogates the feeling of belonging and otherness separation and segregation. Now, having moved to the UK and studied at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland, subsequently worked with various artists and organizations, what are the most striking differences and unexpected similarities between your country of origin and your current home? I think the first thing that I noticed when I moved here was the amount of people on the streets. Iceland is a very small country. It's Europe's least densely populated country and there's only 340,000 people who live there. Um, in Glasgow it's almost double that so yeah when I moved here I was kind of struck by the amount of people but also the diversity. Glasgow is not the most diverse city in the world at all, but in comparison to Iceland, it was a real eye-opener. I think in terms of the projects and things that I have been doing, it's probably the same. It's about the different people I've gotten to know from lots of different backgrounds um, who share similar experiences to mine, but also very, very different. I think Icelandic society is definitely not very diverse at all. So I, I feel here like it's a much richer society in lots of ways because of the diverse people, at least that I have gotten to work with in, in the projects that I've been involved with. I think there are lots of similarities, but I guess for me, I'm much more interested in the differences and maybe the subtle nuances of, of difference in those similarities. What feels maybe most similar is the landscape when when you get out of the city here i think the scottish landscape and the icelandic landscape i think there's lots of similarities with the mountains and the hills and the greenery and sometimes i catch myself um kind of noticing oh the the only difference here really is that i'm driving on the left side of the road which is quite a nice feeling to have but in the city i think it does feel very different and i feel very different being here or when I'm in myself in Iceland, which is also kind of an interesting thing to notice within yourself. So yes, that's fascinating because to be honest, I don't know much about Iceland. Of course, I've heard of it. I've heard it's a recommended tourist destination. Well, for the time being, we can't go anywhere far away, <laughs> but that's really interesting. Is there like maybe something that struck you about the culture, like the people, how they behave? That's different. I mean, I think in Iceland, I mean, obviously I love it and it's it's an amazing country and I, and I highly recommend for people to go because I think it is very different to anywhere else. So I'm not, when I, when I talk about the society here being really rich, I'm not dismissing the society in Iceland. I think I'm just really aware, speaking particularly in this mo moment of time, 
with everything that's going on in the world that actually I think that engaging with people from different backgrounds with different experiences to yours is extremely, extremely important. And I think in Iceland you have limited access to that. In terms of the people, I think um, there's lots of similarities with Scots and with Icelanders. I think they're both really humorous. I think there's this similar kind of darkness in winter and rain in the autumn and spring that makes us a bit, yeah, we complain a lot, I think, especially about the weather. And dry humour, sarcasm. I think there's lots of kind of characteristics and, and, and feelings that feel the same. But then again, also very different. So, yeah, it's kind of a bit of both. <laughs> what is your perception of nationality? Do you believe it's fixed and that we only truly belong to one place? Or is it a more fluid concept and it's possible to construct our own national identity? I think this is a very interesting question to ask at this moment in time. I think I've been reflecting on this a lot over the last few weeks in lockdown, not being able to go to Iceland, but also with everything else that's going on in the world. And I think, obviously, I can only answer from my point of view, which is a particular kind of privileged foreigner in a country. I don't have a lot of the complexities and difficulties that other people have because of where I'm from. But I think for me, being Icelandic and being from Iceland will always be at the centre of my identity. And that is kind of the lens that I see things through a lot of the time, especially when I'm here. I definitely feel like I've managed to build myself a home in Glasgow and I feel at home here, but it's not the same connection to this place as I have in Iceland. I also think sometimes I don't think it is about national identity. I think it's just about where you feel most at home and and where you feel like you belong. And I've spoken to a lot of people who reflect on this in really beautiful ways where they highlight the complexity of of identity and belonging rather than attempting to simplify it with something like I am Icelandic and therefore that is that's my national identity and that's where I'm from. I think if we try to simplify it too much I think it can get really tricky very quickly and it and it kind of closes things in and I believe that if we're able to adapt to new places we can fall in love with a country or a place and, and we can form our identity around that but I also think there's lots of people in the world who do not have a strong or a positive connection with their home and it's been compromised or it's had to shift because they've had to flee their home or they've had to move away or they've been forced to leave for one reason or another. And I think obviously this all is also connecting to Brexit and what's going on here and and, and people's uncertainty with, with what they experience as their home despite what their national identity says. Yeah, so I think it is really complicated And I think that's okay, as long as people don't make assumptions and they are willing to listen. And as I say, I'm aware of my privilege as a foreigner. I've had a few experiences that have really heightened my foreign identity. Everything around Brexit and the language used around foreigners in those discussions was really hard for me to hear and to understand. I had to go through the process of applying for a settled status, which was really undermining and complicated and emotionally overwhelming. But these incidents and a few people who have been rude or who have been questioning are are the only things that I've experienced really. But I also think that's partly because of the community that I'm part of. Because I am an artist, I thrive on an artistic community that is 
my community at least is very open and we celebrate diversity and we celebrate inclusion and therefore I don't really feel like I am on the outside in a way that I probably would feel if I was working elsewhere or if I hadn't had the access to my education, if I didn't speak the language, if I didn't have a secure home and a job and all of these things. So I think, yeah, as I said at the start, I think it's really complicated and I think it's really, it'll really change depending on who you would ask this question. And I was thinking actually, maybe I should steal your question and take it to other people and hear different experiences and responses. And, and I would be curious to know what people's responses are to that question now, what they would have been five years ago, what they will be in five years' time, because I think it's constantly moving and shifting and changing. Yes, I agree with you, because I think our perception of our identity as such, whether it's national or just in general, that changes the whole time. And it does change according to who we speak to and who we encounter and their reactions to us as individuals. So that makes a big difference. Following one of your earlier works, at least we can laugh about it, you were described by the Fringe Review as a tremendously skilled performer who understood how theatre worked (laughs) and used deceit and absurdity in equal measure. At what point did you decide to make a living out of theatre? Can you tell us about the journey that led you from Iceland to Scotland where you now produce the majority of your work? Yes, so I grew up in Iceland and I was always surrounded by lots of creativity and I, from a very young age, I was I was um, in a music school, I did lots of youth theatre, um, I was in lots of creative clubs and things at school and I was continuously seeking ways of what I would describe now as devising work really, whether that would be forcing my friends to make a play in the living room or trying to convince the teacher in school um, for us to write our own play and not not use um, not use Aladdin or, or whatever was being used. So I think I always had a desire to make my own stuff and kind of move away from the score for my violin part or the script that I was given. When I was a teenager, I started joining lots of amateur theatre groups where I was introduced to devising for the first time. And it allowed me to bring together all of the things that I was interested in, which was kind of creative writing and and coming up with things and and performing and including music and, and lots of different creative strands all in one space with lots of people and nobody had like nobody wasn't a trained actor or a trained performance maker and we were all just coming together to make because that's what we enjoyed doing so that was kind of my background I then went into the Icelandic film school where I studied film directing and script writing and from that point onwards I realized that I really wanted to continue performing and I hadn't really found the right course in Iceland I wasn't really sure about how how to combine everything I was interested in into a profession, which was the dream. I came across the Contemporary Performance Practice Programme just in a Google search, I think, when I I didn't get into the Icelandic art school um, and I was kind of feeling a bit lost. I did a Google search, I found the programme. I managed to get a late audition by a miracle and uh, I flew to Glasgow and I had my audition. I got in, I was offered the place there and then and I phoned my mum outside the school saying I got in, it's a four-year course and I, and I got I got a place. 
and I moved to Glasgow two months later. I had to obviously stop everything I was doing in Iceland and kind of drop it and and take a massive risk and it was very complicated because of student finances and the financial crisis that happened in Iceland meant that the the student loan company in Iceland basically wouldn't lend me the money I needed for the course so it was, it was very very complicated to start but that's kind of how I joined the conservatoire. I didn't know much about the course before I started and I didn't know anything about contemporary performance. I didn't know anything about live art. I had never gone to a theatre space and seen experimental theatre. I had never seen young people being themselves on stage. I'd never seen any community performance or socially engaged performance work. And I just threw myself into it and um, it completely transformed my understanding of what it means to be a maker in the world. And, and I think now I see my role much more as um, I've got I've got kind of a two-stranded practice, um, one strand where I'm making my solo work and the other strand where I'm a director and and a lecturer and, and in that work I mainly work with people who are non-professionals, who, who are in the community, who maybe don't consider themselves as creatives or who have never performed before. So that strand kind of roots back to where I came from, which is about celebrating being in space together and, and, and making stuff happen. So that's really how I started. You mentioned the audition that you had to do. Now, I think from the perspective of somebody listening to the episode and they be interested to enter a university or college or whatever it is, conservatoire, what were you expected to do for the audition? Um, I had a late audition, so mine was mine was very different to what it would normally be. So. What I had to do is I devise a short performance, sort of a three minute performance from a series of photographs that I was sent in the post. And I made a short devised autobiographical performance that I performed to a panel and then there was an interview. So that's all I did. And and there was some paperwork involved. I had to write a, a performance analysis on a piece of work that I had seen. So it kind of covers, I guess, what you will be engaging with as a student, devising your own performances, analysing other people's work, and then being able to talk about it and talk about your interests and what you're making. But if people are interested in applying for the Contemporary Performance Practice Programme or other programmes in the UK, I would highly recommend it. Um, It's obviously different between universities, but I think more and more courses are trying to stay away from they're just being a seated panel and, and kind of a traditional audition where you have to learn a monologue and, and, and deliver it in a certain way. And I think they're opening up to people writing their own um, monologues or, or dividing their own performances and there being a more kind of casual interview that is genuinely about getting to know the person and, and to hear what you're interested in rather than you taking boxes. Okay. And what kind of things did you have to drop in Iceland? Were you already employed or were you doing some other studies or? I was at the Icelandic University where I was studying creative writing and literature, which I just started doing because I was interested in it, but it wasn't really my thing at all. So I stopped that and I had a job, which I stopped and I was renting a flat, which obviously stopped renting. So it was a big shift. And I think the biggest shift was just because I didn't really 
coming to the RCS wasn't really a dream. It wasn't. I didn't even know that it existed until a few months before I applied. So it all happened very quickly, and it felt like it was happening by chance. But now I don't I definitely don't see it that way because it just felt like it was the perfect match for me in terms of that program and and what it offered me. The main shift just came from how quickly it all happened and how unexpected it was to get in and how I, I'd never thought about moving away for four years to study somewhere that wasn't really in the picture. I just thought I would apply and, and to see what would happen and what it would be like. I guess I can also encourage people to do that, to go for it and see what happens. You never know. Yes. As well as receiving the Banner Graduate Award in 2016, you have performed at Buzzcut, Battersea Arts Centre, Toynbee Studios, and you have worked with many different artists. To contextualise your work and perhaps some of your other roles that you've mentioned, director and lecturer, what are some of the highlights over the last three years? Big question. I've had lots and lots of highlights for different reasons, moments of great learning and moments of real accomplishments. I think in my in my solo performance work, performing at Buscut was a highlight because it was the first performance that I did after graduating when I performed Delicious at Busco in 2017. The space I was in was absolutely packed with audience and it just felt like such a triumph for me to be able to put something together and, and perform it and to feel really proud of it. I then developed that work and, and have toured it to a few different places, a few different venues in, in the UK and I also took it to Finland in 2019 which was another highlight just because of how difficult and kind of disappointing it was as an experience. I was invited to take the work to an international festival in Finland and it was yeah very disappointing and I basically took this whole show to Finland. I went there alone and I performed to six people who had dressed up to go to the theatre and it, there was no, it, there wasn't really a festival and it was all very confusing and there was like massive language barriers and it was just, yeah, just a very unexpected experience that, that taught me a lot as an artist. I also have been really fortunate to make a lot of work as a director. I work a lot with a company called Glass Performance who are based in Glasgow. I went on a placement with them when I was a student and after that I have been an associate artist with the company. So I have led and directed productions with young people. Most recently I think my highlight has been working with Pullman Youth Theatre which is the first youth theatre based in a prison in Scotland so it's based at Pullman Young Offenders Institution and I have been working as a director there over the last couple of years and we basically formed a youth theatre in their performing arts space where I'm working currently still with some incredible young men devising performances from scratch and performing to other inmates, to their friends and families and to an invited audience and that's been a real triumph in and I guess kind of marrying my two interests of being a performance maker and making political entertaining and engaging work and then my practice as a as a director in social contexts and most recently in lockdown we have been continuing that project through writing letters 
to them and, and continuing the engagement. And I'm just about to embark on a new journey with that project where I'm going to be doing radio shows to be broadcast in Pullment, engaging the young men and women there in, in creating content for a podcast similar to this, where we'll, we'll be interviewing people and, and playing their music and, and doing creative tasks. So I think lots and lots of highlights and lots of lots of failings and lots of moments of celebration and and it's been really rich like i've had lots and lots of different experiences in different contexts and i think it's hard to it's hard to pick a few maybe yes definitely (laughs) part two creating for others as well as yourself so while your work explores concepts of home and belonging It's also a great example of theatrical experimentation. You present powerful ideas in a playfully abstract way while involving your audience with seeming spontaneity. Together, these elements, the poignancy, the abstract playfulness, the spontaneity, they all create meaning in the moment. Is your work largely scripted or is there a measure of improvisation? I think it is, when it comes to the final performance, most of it is fully scripted. Sometimes it appears spontaneous and and unscripted, but actually it is very, very thoroughly scripted. To allow for it to appear in the moment, I think it needs to be really well controlled and really well measured. Um, When I start making work, I don't start with a script. I usually start with lots of different experiments and research, trying to answer questions, trying to examine a piece of material or a song or an article or something myself that I'm interested in. And then through a process of playing with it and layering things and putting things next to each other and asking lots and lots of questions along the way, I formalise a script. But in my work, it's also very responsive to the audience and I involve the audience a lot with direct involvement, inviting them on the stage, asking them questions, having them part of it. And obviously there is a lot of improvisation that that is involved in that where I am responding to something that I don't know what is until the audience gives me their answer. So I think it's a bit of both and, and I'm trying more and more to, I think, blur the boundary between the two so I can move I can move fluidly between responding to the audience and then back into the script but for it not to sound like I am speaking from a script for it all to sound like it's live and responsive. Mm. And why did you decide to go about creating this kind of work because I mean I've heard of other theatre makers who they they literally go with it's almost entirely improvisation so What's your particular reason for moving kind of like from the script and then also welcoming the bits with the audience that you don't know what they are going to be? I think for me, I have always been interested in trying to articulate my experience of something, trying to really understand it. Like with Elysian, for example, I don't think I would have been able to really dig into the themes of the show if it was kind of improvised or if it was more spontaneous. I feel like I need to make a lot of material and then filter it down and really be careful about my choice of words, really be careful about my choice of actions 
because I think I'm just so aware of the readings of it all for an audience. And obviously I can't control that and, and every single audience member will see it differently. But I think maybe it's about control. Maybe it's that I want to control part of their experience of it or at least I want to be in in control of the material. And then I think the, the spontaneity of it is about allowing for that real exchange and real live experience of it from the audience perspective and for me to respond to their responses and, and for me to reflect the energy of in the room, which is one of the things that was quite tricky performing a lesson at GIFT, and we can maybe come to that later, is that I didn't have that, that reflection, I didn't have the energy to, to feed off of, and actually I had to kind of imagine that as I was performing. So one other reason for why I do it is, is I use kind of silly conventions or silly costuming and prop a lot in my work as a way to allow for a, a bit of a silly exploration of something, but it has a more serious undertone. And then through my control of the script and through the carefully selected material, I then allow for there to be a flip of that silliness and actually the seriousness of it is uh, exposed and the, there's a shift in the audience's reaction of it going from laughter and it going from being entertaining and, and light-hearted to the same material suddenly being perceived as something much more serious. Yes. Now, talking about the performance of Illusion at GIF, it was a really surreal experience, not least because it was on Zoom, obviously, <laughs> on a digital platform. So we, the audience, watched as you inflated the lilo at the start, walked between inflatable palm trees, shared your lilo virtually, with an audience member, <laughs> imagined we were on tropical islands, listened to you play the ukulele and held melting ice in our hands, which by the way was, I've never done that before, so it was a really <laughs> different sensation. In fact, the whole experience was a whirlwind of sensations, hot, cold, laughter, loneliness, togetherness, sadness, and doubt. Talk us through the initial inspiration an eventual realization of this work. I started making Elysian in 2017, which was sort of at the start of the real Brexit discussions. And I experienced a real heightened sense of my foreign identity. I felt like there was a shift happening in society or in my awareness of society in that it felt like separation and segregation was suddenly kind of surfacing a lot more and the language used around the Brexit discussions which I've spoken about before, I think that just really urged me to make something that would respond to that. I didn't want to make a performance that was about Brexit or about what it means to be a foreigner. I wanted to use my experiences to explore loneliness and belonging and what it means to be an individual and what it means to be part of a community or a collective and what it means to be an individual nation and what it means to be a part of a community or a collective of nations. So that's really the starting point for the show. I started investigating the hot and cold and, and kind of came up with the inflatable tropical paradise which it's presented in um, as a way of responding to Iceland being seen as this kind of winter paradise and incredible tourist destination and the smallness of the country and the fact that it's in the middle of nowhere being used as a way of advertising it as a tourist destination. So I was I was curious about Iceland as a small country that fought for independence 
and then what the opposite of that would be and the kind of warm tropical paradise where you feel like you can escape the cold you can escape all your worries and concerns and and you can just en- enjoy the heat these were really the first sort of ideas that i had and then as i started making the work i basically made lots and lots of material that was exploring the difference be- between hot and cold the difference between being alone or being together and what we're willing to sacrifice for each other how to survive is it possible to survive on your own or do you need other people elision's digital version was perhaps even more of a novel experience than you originally intended as it involved exploiting the possibilities of technology and you've already touched on perhaps the energy that was lacking you couldn't sense what the audience perhaps was feeling or what state of mind they were in so firstly why did you decide that the digital experience was worth trying. I think really it was the support from the Gift Festival team and from Kate. I think it was the support from them that really enabled me to make that decision. It was an offering and they had a conversation with me about whether I would be interested in adapting it for this new online festival as a response to COVID and and the restrictions and everything and and I felt like it was such a important and beautiful um solution to move the festival online and i felt like i just needed to be part of it and that was really what made me make the decision to begin with but it was also very daunting and very overwhelming i didn't know anything about the technological aspect of, of realizing the work i didn't know anything about the equipment that i would need i didn't know how it would work i was unsure if it would be possible to involve the audience like i would I didn't really know how to stage it in my living room and I was also really conflicted about the importance of doing something like this, of taping my curtains together and inflating palm trees and turning the cameras on when we were in the middle of a pandemic. So it was emotional and overwhelming at first, but as I started figuring out how how to adapt the work for this platform and how to set everything up, I slowly started to realise the importance of creating an experience that connects people, even in a situation like we were in and like we still are in. So my attempt really became about how do I make this live? How do I connect with the audience? And how do I not make it feel like a compromise of the work? How do I allow it to become something else? Which it actually really did. And it was really interesting to hear people's responses to the work because previously my audience reflected that it feels like it is very much about foreign identity it is very much about segregation and separation but this time around because i was in my living room and because everyone else was in their living room watching it it suddenly really highlighted the themes of loneliness and belonging and the importance of connection i'm really glad i did it but i wouldn't say that it was easy in any way and it was kind of a bizarre experience in lots of ways and i think it really highlighted for me how ridiculous it is doing what i do even though it's obviously not ridiculous it's amazing and it's so important and and i love it but inflating the palm trees and turning on the cameras and and doing all the movement and doing all the text and everything and then just turning the stream off and still being in my living room and then taking everything down it kind of highlighted how strange it is to create that world when you don't have anyone really there in front of you to invite into it. 
you're kind of suspending your own belief for a moment in time and then you're just still in your living room <laughs> yeah so what were some of the challenges in changing it you have mentioned a few but if you had to like say maybe what was the most challenging thing in adapting it for the digital platform i think the most challenging thing was probably how little control i had once the show began i think that was what i found trickiest when i have performed it and as i said i've performed it in lots of different venues to audience that i know and audience that i don't know and there's been different kind of difficulties that have arisen throughout the performances this time because i was on my own and my partner was in in here with me and he was kind of helping out with swapping between cameras and things like that i had three cameras i had three different audio sources i had a technician a gift technician who was helping with the audience coming in and out so there was kind of a big production around it even though i was just on my own in it but i was just so aware of how unreliable the technology was i had moments in tech rehearsals where my other cameras would just stop recording and there was no reason for it or there would be sort of latency and, and, and difficulties that were completely out of my control and something that I just had to be ready to respond to. And I had one of these issues early on in the work where a camera that was picking up the action on the inflatable lilo which was on the ground where it just didn't work and actually that became one of the highlights for me from that experience because it forced me to react live and it, and it exposed it to the audience that this is live and it's an experiment and it's happening right now and something is failing. And what felt like an half an hour of fixing it was actually like about 20 seconds of a very smooth fix. I think the fact that when I'm in the room performing in front of an audience, if something happens, if a joke doesn't land or if I, like I've, I have slipped before and fallen down or, or there's a failure with a prop or the music doesn't come on I can respond to it live and I can make it part of the work but in this instance it felt like I wouldn't be able to do that in the same way which was really difficult to to come to terms with yes I can imagine part three escaping the cold of an artless world right at the end of Elysian there is this incredible moment where you say the refrain of the show one last time Imagine you are floating far away from everything and everyone you know. Do you share the door or do you keep it to yourself? It pulls all the imagery and the words together and leaves one with the need to be around people and not out in the cold, so to speak. Did a particular experience trigger you to write this passage about the door that, I mean, it's not really explained in the show, but at the end, we get the impression of what you're trying to say. I think what inspired me to make this passage was, at the time, I think I was really aware of, like like I say, the Brexit discussions and, and this kind of heightened feeling of separation and segregation. I was reflecting on how Iceland is an independent country and we pride ourselves of, of the independence and it feels like is a very important part of the Icelandic identity. And I was aware of that and how that kind of influenced my thinking about the independence referendum in Scotland and how at the time 
I felt like that would be the right decision to make to be independent and in a similar way to Iceland but also that was kind of jarring with my my beliefs in community and my political beliefs in in bringing people together and, and connecting with others especially those who might not have the same experiences or share the same interests and ideas that that I do so I was yeah I was kind of trying to make something that would bring all of these things together but mainly focusing on this idea of what does it mean to be an independent human being what does it mean to be a part of something what does it mean to be an independent nation or part of a group of nations and what does it mean if we make a decision to step away from that and to remove ourselves and can we survive alone I guess and this question is something that I bring up a few times in different ways throughout this work as a way of interrogating what is still our current climate of separation and segregation and to ask the question directly of whether we are better off alone or if we're willing to share a space and what the consequences for are for ourselves and for others whatever our decision is is also a reference to that very famous scene in Titanic when Rose is on the door and Jack is hanging off the side of it. And I use that scene in the work. I, I do that scene with an audience member. It's the only scene that I work with directly. Everything else is, is devised, but it felt important to involve it since I feel like it speaks of so many things. And, and like you say, it kind of wraps up everything that I'm talking about and exploring in Elysian. It's about what we hold on to, what we let go of, and what we consider as important in the world. And I guess within that, whether there is space on the door for others. To respond to your question about whether I would share the door or not, yes, I would definitely share it. And I would hope that if I... Obviously, it's one thing to say that or, or to actually do that, but I would hope that if I was in a position where I had to make an action that would be the same as that metaphor. I would hope that I would, and, and I would hope that that people would in general. It does put it in context. I understand it better now, in fact. <laughs> so, so thank you for the explanation. Sometimes making art, especially if it's not of the readily consumable kind, can feel like floating far away from everything and everyone. This is one of the reasons why making a living out of a creative pursuit especially when you're more in the experimental kind, whether it's theatre, music or painting, is not always easy. Would you agree? And also given the recent changes with venues being closed and festivals being cancelled, has it gotten a lot harder to survive as an artist? Yes, I think it definitely has gotten a lot harder. I think there's lots and lots of people who rely on project to project way of living. If you're an artist, most people are freelance, most people rely on funding and and projects and festivals and it feels like at the moment all of this has been cut or postponed or the fees have been reduced. Yeah, so I think it has gotten a lot harder and I also think it's specifically hard for those who are less established. I think if you're an established artist, there's maybe the hope of some sort of a, a bounce back once things start to open again. My fear is that venues and festivals will, will have to programme 
more known artists in order to make some money back when actually it's the more emerging less established artists who are going to be hit the hardest I think I mean I am still continuing um, some of my projects like I'm still continuing my work in Pullman from my home I'm still doing my teaching at the Royal Conservatoire from home I'm trying to continue some of my performance projects and I'm and I'm directing a, a young company called Platform Young Company from my living room but also all of these things are going to be coming to an end in the next few weeks before the summer and usually I would have lots of projects lined up and I have got nothing and I fall through the gaps in terms of government funding I'm not eligible for it so I think there's just a lot of uncertainty and a lot of criticism on how artists have been supported before all of this happened I think it's exposing how artists have been exploited, how they have been commissioned to make new performances for very little money for the venues and the festivals. So yes, I think it's really hard. I think it's very hard for people who are about to graduate. I think it's very hard for emerging artists and experimental artists. My hope is just that this is going to bring some radical change and that actually, hopefully, the the, the older, more established artists are going to need younger more experimental artists after all this finishes and after we kind of go back to a new normal, whatever that will be. Because I think what what we have got is willingness to adapt, willingness to try out new things because we have got we have got a record. We've got it's like with Elishan at Gift. I don't think I would have been able to do that if I was some form of a world famous artist. I don't think I would have risked myself performing in my living room with low tech and kind of a DIY aesthetic. But I can do that and I can learn loads from it and I can gain new skills that I can then use to my advantage once this is all over, hopefully. Yes. Well, we'll see what the future holds. I think it's just at the moment everything's still very uncertain. So what are your thoughts on the future of the industry and artists in general? Does the world need live art or is there some ways that perhaps some of these emerging artists can adapt? I think we do need art, yes. I think um, I'm a strong believer in the transformative power of the arts and their way of connecting people and connecting ourselves with things outside of us. And I think it's become really clear to me in lockdown how important it is. I feel like everyone is making things and being creative. And, you know, people are suddenly falling in love with the process of making sourdough, which like takes days on end with lots and lots of failings and and attempts. And then at the end of it, you've got a loaf of bread, which is a which is an art artistic process. You know, you're creating something. So I think. We've also found lots of new ways of connecting over Zoom and making things together and taking part in different processes. And I think, yeah, so I do think it's important. I think the arts, for me, are fundamentally about our experiences as human beings, where we learn new skills and we question the world around us and we make something from it, whether that's a painting or a performance or or anything else. And I don't think there is... There are many things that are more important than that to feel connected to the world around us and, and to ourselves as as human beings. So I do think it's really important, but I also think it's important that we take time as artists to 
pause and to reflect. I don't think it's sustainable for us to just hammer through this when it feels like everything has has stopped for the moment being. But for us to really consider what is it that what is it that we do and how do we either adapt that to suit this new way of being or, or shift that or do we continue doing it and just pause for a moment? I think it's probably going to be different for everyone. Yes, that's true. And just on the, the note of art, I think it's actually been a great help during this time for people to kind of just cope and sometimes feeling that connection with others through the art, say, whether it's a live stream of music or theatre production or whatever um, the particular Absolutely. performance is. So thank you for joining me today, Gudrun. It has been really fascinating. Uh, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Before we go, I have a few quick roundup questions, just so that listeners can get to know you a little bit better. What is the most recent film series you watched, podcast you listened to, or book you read? I am really obsessed with documentaries and kind of real stories. So I've been watching a lot of documentaries in lockdown. I recently finished reading Rebecca Solnit's Men Explained Things to Me, which I like returning to every few months and I can highly recommend. I was also part of an online seminar by the writer David White, who is a poet and a writer who is incredibly good at writing about everyday experiences in such beautiful and meaningful ways. And um, and the seminars were titled Just Beyond Yourself, exploring robust vulnerability through his poetry and, and storytelling and kind of tasks that he that he offered his um, the participants, which just felt so massively important in this moment in time. What is the one piece of advice that changed your life the most? <laughs> I really struggle with this question. And I think it's probably because I don't think I, I don't think I go by a piece of advice at all. But there is this Icelandic saying that is um which means something along the lines of like everything will turn out to be okay or, or it'll be it'll be fine or it'll turn out fine, but in a much more kind of robust, meaningful, powerful way. And Icelanders use it a lot. And I use it a lot, not in a kind of brush over, oh, it'll be fine, I don't need to worry about it away, but in a kind of robust way of, of going, I've done all the work, I've, I've, I've done as much as I can, and it, and it will be fine. Um, yeah, so I think in terms of the unknowns, everything that's going on in the world, maybe that's a good one to stick by for now. <laughs> that, that I does. agree. Tell us about the biggest challenge that you have overcome in your life. I think I find it really hard to lose people. And I think that probably connects to my work as well in terms of looking at belonging and loneliness and and these sort of things. I've obviously, I mean, everyone has lost people in their lives, but I lost my granddad a few years ago. And I feel like I'm still coming to terms with that and and trying to understand it. I don't think it's a challenge that can be overcome to lose someone that's close and dear to you, but something that maybe you 
learn to live with and you learn to kind of understand as time goes on. But I think that is what I find most challenging and probably what I fear the most as well. What is the first place country that you will visit when this is over? Iceland, without a doubt. I, <laughs> I, I have conversations with my family like every single day about like, when are you booking tickets? What's happening with the lockdown in the UK? And the answer is always the same. It's like, I don't know, nobody knows. And I'm absolutely desperate to go. So definitely Iceland. Yes. What do you know about theatre in general today that you wish you'd known five or ten years ago? It's quite, it's quite a tricky question and I don't think my, my answer probably is not about theatre but more about like myself as a theatre maker or something. I think what I've realised now, which I definitely had not, had got, not got any understanding of when I was beginning my studies is that it, it never gets easier or you never feel like you've got it. It's like, I don't think there is a destination for any of this. I don't think you wake up one morning and you go, oh, great, I'm, I'm an accomplished artist now. I've really got it now. I've, I've achieved the thing. And that actually, that is what makes it really exciting. It's like how it's a, one massive journey with lots and lots of different experiences and lots of different opportunities. And I think there's always going to be ups and downs within that and, and lots of uncertainty and then certainly lots of certainty. Maybe in terms of theatre and performance, I think maybe just I didn't realise how much power it can have even in contexts where there's very few audience members or it's not on a massive stage, where it's not on mainstream television, where it's just a few people in the room. I see. Fascinating. So thank you once again. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. For listeners, if you would like to find out more about Gudrun Soleil, and I'm going to ask you to pronounce your surname and I'll try and say it correctly. <laughs> Daughter. Sigurda Daughter. And her fascinating work. Visit her website at gudrunsoleil.com. Or you can also find her on Twitter at Gudrun Soleil or Facebook and Instagram at Gudrun Soleil Sig. This interview was recorded on Zoom and I apologize for the dip in quality in some of the questions. I will be switching to a new remote recording platform soon to eliminate some of the teething technical issues I've been experiencing during my interviews in lockdown. So please bear with me until then. If you enjoyed this narrative journey, please still subscribe and kindly spread the word by leaving me a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. By sharing the podcast episode and giving me a thumbs up on social media, you help other people find this podcast. And who knows, they might enjoy it and find it beneficial. Join me next time for more narrative journeys into creative business ideas.